I loved being the CFO of King for the fact that a lot of my conversations were what to do with all this cash, right? So, so it's an industry that generates a tremendous amount of cash. It's a wonderful conversation to have as a CFO. So when you look at uh, the price that way from a multiple of seven to eight X times revenue of a company that's, that is generating quite a bit of bottom line profit and cash, I think it makes sense. Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder, Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder, John Cook. We are coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in tech, science, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere. And every week on this show, we talk about some of the biggest and most interesting stories in the news, which this week, John, is Microsoft and Activision and a record-setting acquisition. Doesn't get much bigger than that. Well, our guest knows a thing or two about Activision, and in particular, one part of Activision. Hope Cochran is a managing director at Madrona Venture Group in Seattle. She invests in areas including financial technology and gaming companies. She was the CFO at Clearwire during its acquisition by Sprint. And then she was the CFO at King Digital, the maker of games, including Candy Crush, where she guided the company to an IPO and then to a 59 billion dollar acquisition by none other than Activision in early 2016. Hope, it's great to have you here. It's great to be here, Todd. Thank you. You've got a fascinating background and you're doing some really interesting things now in terms of your investments, but we can't help but start before we get to those other things with this acquisition this week. What did you think? What was your initial reaction when you saw the news that Microsoft is acquiring Activision Blizzard for nearly $70 billion. It was a busy morning. You know, I woke up and I went through my normal news feeds and there were several about Activision, but they were not about this. I then went about my morning and checked again and there was a whole nother set of headlines about Activision that popped up. And I really do feel like it was that moment of surprise. Um, and then quickly it became a moment of, of course. I do think that it makes a tremendous amount of sense for both companies. I completely understand why Microsoft would be excited to have them as part of the Microsoft family. Um, and so again, a crazy surprising morning, but I think it makes a lot of sense. And for people who are not immersed in the world of gaming, you probably still know the franchises that Activision Blizzard owns. They include Warcraft, Overwatch, Call of Duty, Candy Crush. The obvious question, Hope, here as a follow-up is, why does it make sense? Why did this make sense for Microsoft to do? Well, I think you have to, number one, step back and just recognize that overall gaming as an industry continues to grow. It has had tremendous growth, of course, during the COVID pandemic. And I think we all expect that it'll continue to grow. Gaming has really become integral to all aspects of our lives, whether it be actually engaging in a game or engaging in things that are gamified. It is just an area of expertise, I think, that is needed by companies and is definitely an area that is growing tremendously. So right there, a good place to be. And when you think about Microsoft and the assets in Activision, there's a, a tremendous treasure trove of assets in Activision that I think really can make Microsoft a juggernaut in the gaming industry. You know, I think of you mentioned a few Call of Duty Diablo, StarCraft, uh, Overwatch, these are all things that I think have great potential for being even more monetized than they currently are. And then, of course, we've got the king assets. It's just a tremendous volume of IP there. 
you know, the acquisition was really interesting on a lot of fronts, in part because Activision Blizzard has been going through, I think you mentioned the series of headlines that you were reading before. I think I know what you were alluding to. The Wall Street Journal has been really chronicling some of the uh, negative culture and the management problems going on within the company. And I'm curious, based on your experience having sold King to Activision, if you encountered any of that during your time through the M&A process and then the integration process when King got gobbled up by Activision? Yeah, that's a, a tricky question in the sense that I don't feel like I personally experienced that. But during my tenure at King, we'll remember that we all had Gamergate. So this isn't about Activision in general, but the gaming industry overall has had quite a reputation for being a difficult place to work for women in the workforce. And I we remember Gamergate very dramatically and trying to ensure that women were represented well not only in the workforce of gaming, but also in the games themselves and how they're depicted in these games. So that all came to light, I would say for the, not the first time, but in a big way during Gamergate years ago. And it's been constant drumbeat and yet has it gotten much better? I, I don't know that it has. And so I've been encouraged to see the boldness at Activision for those individuals to speak up and make a make a statement, because I do think it's something that needs to change. Well, you did see the valuation of the company drop, and there's been speculation that this is one of the reasons why Microsoft was able to swoop in because of uh, there's, I mean, gosh, there's the allegations, there's the petition by the employees, there's government action. I, I can't remember the agency at California that's that's investigating what's going on at Activision Blizzard. So they're under a flurry of attacks here and the stock has dropped by 30 plus percent 70 billion still seems very rich to me but it's down from where where it was and so this has allowed microsoft to swoop in and and get the company at maybe a deal i don't know if 70 billion is ever a deal it's an interesting metric i mean i don't know that we can say it's a deal or not a deal but the the revenue multiple is kind of in that seven to eight x range depending on how you want to look at it and it is a very profitable business, right? It spits off cash. I loved being the CFO of King for the fact that a lot of my conversations were what to do with all this cash, right? So, so it's an industry that generates a tremendous amount of cash. It's a wonderful conversation to have as a CFO. So when you look at uh, the price that way from a multiple of 7 to 8x times revenue of a company that's, that is generating quite a bit of bottom line profit and cash... I think it makes sense. How do you see it making sense for Microsoft longer term? So I know there's a lot of talk about the metaverse and some of these games could become a bigger part of the metaverse strategy for Microsoft. But they've already said that some of these games are going to be part of Game Pass and that's a natural next step. But longer term, how do you see Activision Blizzard getting integrated into the Microsoft empire? Yeah, I think there's some real natural synergies, and I don't want to speak for Microsoft specifically, but when I view the gaming industry, one of the things I love about it and that I'm very attracted to by gaming is I always feel like they're somewhat the first adopters of new technology. And so you get a lot of interesting strategic ideas and thoughts in that employee base because they're really trying out new things. I think of like free-to-play as a new way to serve up to consumers that was brand new in the gaming industry. 
you know, now we're talking about the metaverse and Web3 and NFTs, and it's all kind of gravitating to, is this going to be in gaming? Gaming seems to be the place where things are adopted first to see, to try and see if they break. So I think Microsoft is getting a lot of that strategic value, probably in this employee base in this type of sector. Um, and then I think they, there's just obvious synergies in regards to getting that IP, being able to use it with their Game Pass uh, strategies that you referred to, and just continue to build out this great you know, ecosystem of games. The other things I will say is that the amount of players that Activision has is really remarkable. And when you look at their player base, I'm going to talk about it in mouse, some monthly active users. I want to say, and I'm going to speak in rough numbers, but I think they have about 400 million mouse today. And if you break that out, you've got that huge mobile play, which is coming from the King asset. I want to say that it's, you know, 250 or so from King. And then you've got about 30 from Blizzard and you've got about 120 from the Activision brand. But having those amount of individuals engaged in your product on a regular basis is incredibly valuable. We definitely felt that at King. That was one of our greatest assets. It just allows that flywheel of everything else you're offering to be easier. So that's a tremendous asset that I think is unique to Activision because they've got such a stronghold in mobile gaming that Microsoft will really value. And it's interesting, Satya Nadella, Microsoft CEO, called this out in particular during the discussion with analysts and investors. This is an area mobile where Microsoft has struggled to a legendary degree. I mean, Zoom, Kin, Windows Phone, and granted that's hardware, but still it speaks to the fact that they've also struggled to some extent, although I guess you could say Office, Mobile, and other things like that. Have been no, strength. they've struggled, Todd. Just say they struggled. I was going to say, <laughs> all right, trying to be they can have all the Candy Crush players they want on Nokia, <laughs> right? Yes, on your exactly. Nokia devices, there can be a lot of Candy Crush players there. So, Hope, you've obviously been deeply involved in the economics of that business, and you just alluded to some components of it. For people who are not familiar with this, I'm thinking maybe even of a prototypical Microsoft investor out there, like what should they know about the way? King Digital's business in particular works as a portion of Activision. Yeah. And so, of course, I'll speak to the structure of the business and, you know, my experience several years ago um, and how the PL played out. But in general, you know, our primary distributions, Facebook, Apple, Google. And so you would have microtransactions or free-to-play transactions. People would pay for extra moves, ways to help them get through a level. And then 30% would go to those platforms. Um, and then if I thought about the rest of the PL, approximately 20% would go to marketing. And then 10% would go to running the rest of the company. Wow. I know. So ultimately, our EBITDA was about 40%. That is a type of business that Microsoft knows how to run. I mean, that's getting close to a traditional software licensing margin, although back in the day, it would have been closer to 70 to 80 on Windows. But I'll tell you, you can only get to those ratios at tremendous scale. And that's where gaming is hard. And I'll speak specifically to mobile gaming, but I also think any gaming is hard if you don't get to the scale. So when you look at the top 10 games ranked by paid, that top 10 doesn't move very much. Once you get to that scale, you stay there. And that's when you start mining, you know, the, the amount of users you have and whatnot. That's where I say those mouths, we can't 
underestimate how valuable they are because that's what gives you that scale and gets you to that ranking. And then you just have a flywheel effect that's incredible. But breaking into that is what's so hard in gaming. And so you often hear people talk about, you know, one hit wonders, or you don't know if you're going to make it. That's the challenge. You, you have to get your game into that top 10 bracket to really have sustainability. And, you know, I, I remember so vividly in the IPO for King, we had a chart that showed the King games in the top 10, and they were very consistent and had been there month over month and almost year over year, but they were still early. And I, you know, I was uh, discussing how the fact that once you break in there, you have staying power. But of course, we didn't have a long history to really prove that out. Well, I'm, it gives me such satisfaction to know that, you know, this many years later, um, they're still in the top 10 and that staying power is really true. Okay. So what about the risks in this deal? We'll talk about that coming up next. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook, and our guest this week is Hope Cochran, Managing Director at venture capital firm Madrona Venture Group and the former Chief Financial Officer at King Digital, the candy crush maker, which was a key component of Microsoft's deal this week to acquire Activision Blizzard for $68.7 billion. I'm curious if you hope in looking at this deal or listening to the conversations or the statements by the companies, did you hear anything that the typical person might not have heard that stood out as notable based on your past experience? I, I don't know that I heard anything anyone else didn't. I just immediately went to regulatory. Yep. And the fact that you know they're estimating the date, I think they're saying June of 23, which as we sit here in January of 22, feels like a really long time. And, you know, as a CFO that's done lots and lots of deals, you know, in my mind, like time kills all deals. So and, and you just know that regulatory has a lot of scrutiny right now. So I am not speculating on regulatory or the fact, you know, how the deal will come about. But that just feels like a long time. So as we talk about it here today, it's interesting and it's fun to, to think about. But I think we'll really see how it plays out in the next year and a half. And for people who have not followed this, there are sort of two threads to this over the past week. Number one, Microsoft has not faced the level of scrutiny that the likes of Facebook and Amazon and Apple have over the past couple of years. Microsoft had its antitrust heyday a couple decades ago. And yet on the very day that this deal was announced, the Federal Trade Commission and the U.S. Department of Justice started the process to essentially institute a new antitrust regime. And it looks like based on the head of the DOJ antitrust division's past work for Microsoft, this could get kicked over to the FTC where waiting is Lena Khan, who is famous for her law review article about Amazon and calling for essentially a new era of antitrust regulation. And so you look at that and the situation for Microsoft does not look assured in terms of completing this deal. 
you know, let's let's assume that they get through regulatory just to even play that out, um, sure. because it is, you know, gaming is a fairly diversified sector. So if you were to break it apart, you would hope to be able to make the argument that it's gaming and, you know, we don't have those types of tendencies in that sector. But I, I just go back to the time. Like, it's just, it's going to cause friction in the wheels, right? And it's going to take a longer amount of time. And, you know, it's always tricky to run a company when you're in that period of you've, you know, agreed to a merger, you're now trying to keep your company independent and still pursuing a a strategy and a plan. And, you know, you just want to keep your employees focused. So it's just a tricky time. Yeah, I was struck by that, too, in terms of the regulation piece of this. And my first reaction was, it seems like Microsoft's playing a game of chicken here because they have flown under the radar in terms of the regulatory environment. And they have just been able to go out and buy LinkedIn. And, you know, if you look at the billion dollar plus acquisitions in the last few years, Microsoft leads all the other giant companies in terms of gobbling stuff up. And so I think they are getting bigger and more powerful and using their ability to fly under the radar and not get as much scrutiny to go out and make some big moves. And, you know, hats off to Satya Nadella for recognizing that. And and I think they're going to get through with this, is my feeling, in part because I don't think the regulators can even get a handle. I, I think they're just starting to get a handle on e-commerce and social media and the impact these players are are having on the economy, let alone gaming and the metaverse and Web3. I mean, that's this is 20 years out, you know, in terms of, and I think that's where Microsoft is playing. So I think this will get through. Yeah, it'll probably take some time, but Microsoft's already been playing ball with Activision Blizzard for forever. They're one of the studios that is in the Microsoft ecosystem. So in that regard, I think they can probably interact with them as they would a, a traditional studio game publisher. And then once the deal gets done, then they can start to do some of these interesting integrations and really put their stamp on the company. And hopefully, as Satya Nadella and Phil Spencer, the head of Microsoft Gaming, have said, really change the culture of this company, which seems like the time is coming for that to happen. It seems like it's a, a culture that really is in desperate need of change. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I think when I was thinking about the time, recognizing that regulatory is probably the reason why the time is so long, I just immediately go back to all the moments in my career where I had to manage a workforce through this uncertain time. And it's, it's a hard place for management to be because you need to think as an independent company, you need to keep running it, and you've got a bunch of employees that are speculating about their future. And so I, my, my sympathies went out to the, the management of Activision as I think about managing through this year and a half. Yeah, we saw that play out, Todd, and you reported on this with uh, Salesforce acquisition of Tableau where it, it was a longer integration. It took it took some time. And then and you didn't see the results of Tableau under the umbrella of Salesforce for the first couple quarters, but then it kind of shot off as a as a rocket ship. It just took a long time to have that integration. To your point, Hope, that getting those teams integrated, getting people in the right roles, all that takes a lot of time. Well and you can't do that until the acquisition goes through. Right. Right. So it's about status quo. Up yeah. Until set then. up two different entities almost. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, I think about just to, to change topic slightly, but like 
you think of all the times T-Mobile and Sprint went through this dance or T-Mobile and AT&T like that. I mean, they they had employees in this uncertain moment for so many years. Isn't it amazing that deal got done after all that? Yeah. And so and so fantastic. Right. But think about how the stock prices changed during those windows of time and all the different maneuverings that happened. John, to your point, it's sometimes even forgotten that Microsoft has another giant pending acquisition right now. It's in the process of attempting to close the deal for Nuance Communications, which right. was nearly $20 billion. And the same regulatory agency in the UK, if I understand correctly, that held up that Salesforce and Tableau deal at the last minute. It was that weird situation, do you remember, where they said it was closed and yet they couldn't actually integrate because the UK's Competition and Markets Authority was preventing it. That same agency is now blocking, for the time being, the nuance acquisition from closing, it looks like. So anyway, lots of stuff on both sides of the pond. As, as we said, Microsoft has kind of had a mixed track record on acquisitions over, over the years. Uh, we mentioned Nokia, Aquanev, you know, some deals that didn't really go that well. But I think under Satya Nadella, it seems like the LinkedIn deal, I think, has been a real nice acquisition for Microsoft. And then in the gaming universe where they have done some deals, I still I've mentioned on this podcast in the in the past, I still contend Microsoft's greatest acquisition ever, Minecraft. I was going to say, say wasn't it? (laughs) Why, Why do you think that? I mean, I have my own logic. I'm curious. I mean, you're in the industry. I'm curious why you think that. Minecraft is such a unique gem, right? Like it is has staying power. When I talk about that, getting to that certain level and staying there, it's been a remarkable property. Um, And then, you know, I don't want to flip to the metaverse too quickly, but what is a metaverse? It's Minecraft. It's Minecraft, (laughs) right? And so if you want to think of a world where you go and meet your community and build things together and interact together. Like Minecraft has been doing this for a long time. Um, And it was very natural. It didn't feel like an over-engineered, oh, I'm going to build a metaverse. They just were like, hey, let's play Legos together. So, you know, I do think that uh, Minecraft is is a remarkable property. Totally agree. I've talked about this on the show in the past. I've got a 12-year-old boy. And when we talk about the metaverse and, hey, the metaverse isn't here, but it's coming, there's a lot, of, a lot of speculation around that. I'm like, no, the metaverse is here. My son is living in it. I see it every single day. He's in it. So I will tell you that my 21-year-old son still gets together with his friends and plays Minecraft. Yeah, it's crazy. Do they have a VR version yet? A virtual reality version? I don't think so. I don't think they do. I have not seen it myself, but I might not be the one that would be consuming that. Well, the reason I bring it up is because, Hope, you also led Madrona's investment in Rec Room, which I would contend technically is even more metaverse than Minecraft. It is. And it again, it's built a place where people can gather and play. And that, to me... I mean, people can define metaverses in lots of ways right now, but I would simply define it as a a digital space where people can gather and do something together, whether they're working together, whether they're building, whether they're playing, whether they're just talking and communicating. So that is Rec Room. Rec Room is not a place where you open it up just to play a level of a game. Right? You go there to meet your friends and to have pizza with them and to hang out in in the Rec Room. So there's several of these properties that basically 
already were the metaverse and now we're actually able to call them the metaverse because now it's a thing. Tell us about that deal, that company. You know, I, I am really curious about just your take on Rec Room. And obviously you have a vested interest literally in that company. So we've got to take it with that in mind. But I, I'm, I'm curious, can you tell us more? We've been tracking the journey of Rec Room at Madrona for several years now. And over the course of the time, I mean, you all know the first thing you want when you invest in a company is a great team. That's number one. And I think as we've gotten to know that team over the course of the years, they're just a remarkable leadership team. So I am just grateful to be able to join Nick in his journey. He started out building something with a VR inspired vision, and he built a beautiful, beautiful community with VR and then decided that VR wasn't going to get the scale that he needed. And so has then very wisely made that available over lots of different platforms. And now we're working on the mobile version. And so just enabling that scale to come to Rec Room, VR is still a tremendous component of it because it's such a beautiful experience. But now you log in on your mobile device, you log in on your PC, you can log in wherever you are and just jump in and join to be with your friends. You know, you love the activity that's happening there. People are building their own games, they're building their own rooms and building places for their groups to gather and play. So the it, it's really a remarkable situation. One of the things I love about Rec Room, being an investor in Rec Room, is that we get to have our Rec Room meetings in Rec Room. Hey, you're eating your own dog food to th- you know, throw out an old uh, VC slogan. I know. I have lots of pictures of me as an avatar sitting, you know, in this bonfire in Rec Room and like looking at, you know, metrics and charts all together. Do you find it more efficient and effective than uh, a traditional board meeting? Well, so today, since we're doing most of our board meetings in a virtual environment, it seems a bit similar, um, except for the fact that it is way more fun. <laughs> and it's so much it's so much fun to like get ready for the board meeting because rather than like worry about what I'm wearing, I go in there and I try and make sure my avatar has the coolest things. <laughs> so I can look like a true rec room, you know, awesome person. Fashionista. Yeah, I'm a rec room fashionista. Um, the one thing I will say is that I, I do know my fellow board members and investors, but um, if I hadn't got to them outside of rec room, I would have no idea what they look like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this this is crazy. We should say um, rec room, Seattle-based company. It raised two very, very large rounds of capital uh, last year. Madrona being a participant in both of those has a $3.5 billion valuation as of the last round. It makes it one of the fastest growing and biggest unicorn companies in the in the Seattle area. And as of December in our last reporting had over 37 million users. So it's growing incredibly fast. I'm curious, Hope, when you look at this, because, you know, obviously Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook or Meta came out and said, you know, they're all about the metaverse. And it seemed to be this kind of centralized, controlled environment that he was envisioning with Facebook playing a big role. And I'm curious, Rec Room seems to be its own community. So I, I, my question is, do you see the metaverse evolving as like, we're going to have 40 or 50 different metaverses and you pop into the different ones that you play in or interact in, or you have a work one and a play one, uh, or do you see it becoming a more centralized one thing that you go into? And I'm just trying to figure that out based on what Zuckerberg was saying in his two hour long 
presentation on this? Yeah, John, it's it's hard to know and hard to speculate. And part of it is that I am such a practical individual myself that it's a little bit hard for me to think like think of what that would look like. And what I mean by that is one of the things like specifically with Rec Room that we're so careful about is making sure that what goes on in Rec Room is appropriate for the user base of Rec Room. Right. So the the rec room user base tends to be younger and we want to make sure that it's a great environment and that it's safe and that we've got community protocols. So as a result, like it's hard for me to envision being able to create that environment for my preteens, you know, in in a world that's not governed or or just out for everyone. I mean, that those are the types of things that I think need to be looked at. Yeah, it does seem like there's almost a splintering going on, um, even with social networks, like one centralized social network. Is that really? And we've had Spencer Razkoff at the GeekWire Summit talking about this. He's a big believer. He's former CEO of Zillow, angel investor, yeah. who, who believes that like social networking is splintering into these subcategories. So you'll have a social network for food and maybe sports and whatever or music, whatever your interests. And you're not going to have this one collective giant thing that controls everything. And I, I would think maybe the metaverse goes the same way. Yes, I, it's a speculation, right? We'll have to see how it evolves. And I will tell you specifically at Rec Room, we want to make sure that our users are getting what they want. So as we make these decisions with NFTs or Web3 or how is that going to interact with the metaverse, we are constantly polling our users and our actively engaged players to make sure that we're providing a community that they want. And so as I think about how this whole world will evolve, I think it, it will be user-led. It will be what they're looking for. And, and we'll have to see where that goes. This is perhaps simple-minded, but I can't help but think of web browsers and the web as an analogy and precedent where you have common protocols, common standards, different browsers, but all of them essentially serving as a window into the, the same world, essentially. And I wonder if maybe this is already in the works. Frankly, this is way out of my league. This may already exist, but I, I think you could envision that happening in the metaverse where it's a common world with multiple portals into it from different companies and providers. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, the whole premise of Web3 is that it's decentralized. And so we'll have to find, you know, a common ground for these different needs. Coming up next, we talk about Hope Cochran's experience working with one of the most influential, visionary and mysterious executives in Seattle tech history. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Hope, you mentioned earlier the acquisition of Sprint by T-Mobile. Your history actually has some fascinating lineage in terms of your work with Clearwire and John Stanton. Can you 
catch folks up on that. And I want to ask, are you, are you a T-Mobile customer? I am. <laughs> you, look so, at that. <laughs> so not only am I a T-Mobile customer, I'm still an Android user because of all of that history. We have so much in common. <laughs> People get texts from me and they think, oh, it can't be you because this is looking like it's from an Android. I'm like, nope, I've never used a Mac or an Apple device. Not that I have anything against them. In fact, my son's going to be working there this summer. So go Apple. But um, <laughs> it's just that at Clearwire, we were only on Android devices. And as the CFO and out talking to the investor community, I had to make sure and eat my, you know, use my product. So that got me started with Androids and I've been an Android user ever since. But that was quite a journey. I don't even know where to start, Todd, with that question. Uh, I will start by saying I am grateful for the Clearwire community. Um, and you specifically mentioned John Stanton. He's a pillar in my world and my community and just an amazing advisor to me. I'm so grateful for his influence. And also the whole Clearwire family was really remarkable to be a part of. And I learned a tremendous amount in that journey. And they essentially created the infrastructure, the wireless infrastructure that got sold to Sprint that ended up being really the big appeal to T-Mobile in terms of making that acquisition. Yeah, you have to give Craig McCaw credit, right? Craig McCaw is a major visionary in regards to the airwaves, uh, you know, so the spectrum. So he amassed this 2.5 spectrum um, kind of under the radar is very complicated piece of spectrum to pull together. And he amassed it until it was all of a sudden, you know, quite con continuous across the US, United States. I remember meeting with Craig when I was interviewing for that role. And, and he said, you know, I just believe that someday we're going to do more than uh, we're going to use data more than voice over our mobile devices. Hmm. And um, if we use data more than voice, we need a different band of spectrum to do that. And that was the, the fundamental premise you had to believe to believe that Clearwire was going to be valuable. What was it about Craig McCaw that allowed him to see that? I don't know, but I have to give him credit for really seeing these things before other people did. And, you know, we, we speak about him in past tense. He's very active today, uh, very active at Pendulum with his SPACs. Um, and he's <laughs> yeah. doing all sorts of things still, still disrupting industries. It's a great example of because we, we do tend to forget about him because he is so under the radar. Is John, can you think of another executive out there that we cover that is that much you know behind the curtain? Definitely not. I would say Paul Allen was a little bit that way yes. to a degree uh, and a little mysterious. But Todd, remember, we, we had always kicked around the story at GeekWire. We already had the headline, what the heck happened to Craig McCaw? Because he was he's so in the shadows of things. You just don't hear anything about them, but really a pioneer in, of the wireless industry, certainly globally. Yeah. Well, I think he was the founder of AT&T Wireless. As Macaw Cellular. That whole family tree. And then we had Clearwire and that whole family tree, which now has ended up at T-Mobile. So I think you have a Craig McCall line through almost every large telecom. And I have to say, Hope, your colleague, Tom Alberg wrote a book called Flywheels. Yes. And he worked in the early days at Macaw Cellular. And my favorite anecdote from that book was Craig Macaw and the water guns. He would like walk around to people's offices and squirt them with water guns. Can you imagine getting away with that today? Like, I, <laughs> it was just bizarre. Water guns and food fights. Those are his yes. signature. 
Wow, yeah. crazy. Yeah. That, somebody's got to write a, a, I know Casey Core did a book way back, but somebody's got to write a biography of Craig McCaw here uh, in his latter years. Well, I remember so vividly that conversation I had with him about, you know, when I was looking to join on with Clearwire, I was looking to find my next thing and I was meeting with other software companies and I, I felt like their visions were interesting. But when I heard Craig's vision, like I love big vision. And so how could you not? I mean, it was it was big. That's all he he only thinks big. So that's what attracted me. So Hope, that's a good segue into my next question. You're in the business now of finding those next generation entrepreneurs who are thinking big. We've talked a lot about mobile and gaming, but you're spending your time in some other areas too. I'm curious where you see new opportunities, what entrepreneurs are rising to the top that have that grand vision that you're investing in or are excited about? Yeah, it's a great question. We tend to gravitate to what we know. In one case, I want to say my scars. Um, and so I love things that make the world of the CFO better. And that sounds boring, but anything that has to do with applying new technology, such as ML or AI to any sort of back office process are just things that I really gravitate towards because I recognize that the back office is messy. People think that there's all these new solutions out there, but ultimately we run off of a lot of spreadsheets. You know, one of the things I always have my companies do is identify everything they do on a spreadsheet and how can we systematize that? And so that's kind of a map for what I look for in investing. And usually it results in incredibly boring things that I think are awesome. Some examples are, you know, Tesorio is one of my favorites. You know, we're, we look at automating cash flow forecasting. Every CFO does cash flow forecasting on a messy spreadsheet. Um, and yet it's such an important metric and important thing to make sure you've got your pulse on. So that's one thing I love. I love StrikeGraph. StrikeGraph is helping automate the process of getting security certifications. Um, so if you think of Sarbanes-Oxley, it's like the next version. So the SOC 2s, the HIPAAs, the ISOs. And how can we make that in an automated fashion? And really, so we can get through a sales cycle faster and we can show that our, our product is security compliant. And then most recently, and this is a little bit off of that trajectory, but Pendulum is one of my newest companies that I've really been able to incubate with our partner at Madrona Venture Labs, which is really going after the narratives on the internet that can be harmful. So if you look at being able to comb through podcasts and, you know, all of the videos on YouTube and being able to find where those narratives begin and really allow you to stop them at the source, this is both, you know, for corporations as well as government entities, as both the public and the governmental agencies are, are fighting this new line of just a lot of disinformation out there. So do you have to shift your brain between, I mean, I'm thinking of these concepts and some of these really kind of heavy duty enterprise software B2B plays. And then you've got Rec Room, you know, a real consumer fund. Like what's the difference between running those two types of companies? And as an investor in both of those, do you have to put a different hat on for each of those? Or is it a company's a company and it doesn't really matter that much? Every company is different. I don't think any company has a company and they're all the same. Every company is different, and I am grateful and honored to be a part of each one. One of the things that's in my history is I started a company, you know, Skills Village, long, long time ago. But I always say that's the best way to give yourself a chief title is you give it to yourself. So that's how I made myself a CFO. 
And we ran that company and sold it to PeopleSoft. My point in that story is that it is hard to be an entrepreneur. And I know that. And I did it. And I had so many moments when I thought that company was going to die because of choices that I made. Like I made mistakes, right? And you just feel that so intently. And just empathizing with that journey with the entrepreneurs, I view every company as so unique and different. And they all have their ups and downs. There's never a straight line. And anything I can do to be there to help them think through how to get that get through that initial difficulty is what I love to do. Hope, you're also on the boards of three public companies, if I'm counting correctly, Hasbro, MongoDB, and New Relic. And you also lead Madrona's work with an organization called Onboarding Women. Women are not represented well on corporate boards in terms of their numbers. Can you talk about that work, your experience on these public company boards, and how you're own work as a board member has informed your understanding of this whole issue? I really love my public board work. I work with really remarkable people on those boards, and you really feel like a team uh, with a mission, and that's really fun. I also love the fact that I'm able to do my public company board work and then also partner with these young companies and have both sides of that journey. And so I feel incredibly blessed with that. In regards to uh, women in the, the boardroom, on the executive team, it is, it is something that we constantly need to push forward. And I am grateful to be on those boards and to be able to push that agenda forward. And it, it needs to be brought to the front regularly. And I don't mean just in big conferences or big discussions, but like in the boardroom, in the discussion, like it needs to be brought up constantly. And, you know, as I look at that, I am not the only woman in the boardroom on any three of those anymore. I've got a lovely cohort of women that are by my side. And when that happens, what I find is that I'm now not the person in the boardroom that are upholding all women. I am the person in the boardroom that is an expert in financial expertise, digital gaming, whatever it is I bring. That's my knowledge base to that boardroom when I'm surrounded by other women in the room versus if I'm the only woman in the room, then I feel like I am very much making sure I'm representing the women of the company. So it just allows me to be more myself and more my expertise when I'm surrounded with more women or more you know, unrepresented individuals in the boardroom. So I've been grateful that in my three, we've really um, gotten better about that. But it is interesting as I reflect back on my career in an operating capacity, I've never had another woman at the table with me at my level. In terms of on the executive team? On the executive team. And in a recent podcast, you mentioned that and you said that it didn't really bother you. Why Why not? I think I, I accepted it until... At this stage in my life, I've now reflected back. And you feel differently now? Well, I just feel like it's not right. <laughs> That's the problem. At the time, I was on such an ambitious journey that I, I just you know, kept going forward. And I, I didn't reflect on it too much. But looking back, it is true. And I look at the executive teams of the companies that I work with, and I work very hard to ensure that that is not the case, although it is often still the case. That podcast that John mentioned, by the way, I highly recommend it. Both John and I listened to it before having this conversation. Unfortunately, we're coming to our, the end of our time together, but you do a much deeper dive on your own background, Hope. It's The Room Podcast, and that's Madison McElwain and Claudia Laurie. And Madison is Matt McElwain of Madrona's daughter. 
Do I have that right? She is. And I often like to say that Matt McElwain is Madison's father because that's almost <laughs> yes. the better way to look at it. She is impressive. Yes. After listening to that podcast, I was saying, there's no way I can even, we can even come close. Well, I'll speak for myself. I can even come close. The reason I bring it up is you told a fascinating story there about your background in music at Stanford and how that informs your own approach today. What did you learn or what, what habits did you adopt in your time at Stanford and just generally in music uh, that you applied to what you do today? Yeah, I was fortunate to be able to go to Stanford. You don't go to Stanford to say, hey, I'm going to be a music major, although Stanford does everything well, but that's usually not the reason you choose that school. So I went to Stanford assuming I would be in business and pursued an econ degree, which was the intention. Um, I am cheap by nature. So in order to get free vocal lessons, which I had had voice lessons my whole life, you had to declare a major in music. And so I did that so I could continue on my vocal training. And then, of course, felt guilty for doing that. So then took all the music classes along the way. And it ended up being a much more rigorous major than the econ. I ended up doubling in both econ and music. And uh, what I always say from that experience is that econ got me the interviews that I needed to launch my business career, which was incredibly important. And I will remind all my children that as they choose their majors. But when I think about my day-to-day in the business environment and the business world, so many of the things that I learned as being a music major are what I actually apply every day. And what I mean by that is, you know, I was in opera. So you do not get up on a stage and not know that aria through and through. Like that is just panic. So practice makes perfect is an absolute discipline that is nailed in me. I mean, I would get up at 6 a.m. and be in that practice room for hours. And just the fear of, of getting on a stage and not knowing it, right? That's a good motivator. So as I think about showing up to a boardroom, as I think about showing up for a presentation, practice makes perfect. You know, I have learned that I am prepared. Um, I have also learned to handle a room, Meaning I'm on stage, I need to handle a group of people. As I think about all the rooms I've been in with all men, um, I can command a room. And I think a lot of that goes to my stage training. And then, you know, the other, the other element is just things go wrong. And what do you do when things go wrong? Well, when you're on stage, you have to pretend like nothing went wrong and handle it and react very, very quickly. I've learned to be agile, to react calmly, and to find the solution very, very fast. I was seeing as you were talking, our podcast producer, Kurt Milton, was nodding his head. You have in common with Kurt singing. Kurt is also a singer. You have in common with me music. I love to play guitar. And you have in common with John frugality. John is also epically cheap. (laughs) (laughs) My number one trait. (laughs) Yes, there we go. There we go. I was going to ask if Hope could take us out in song here, you know, as we wind wind down. It's not going to (laughs) happen. I didn't think it was going to happen. If you had a song that defines you as a venture capitalist, what is it? Oh, (laughs) I would have to go to, um, I'm I'm a musical crazy person. Great. Um, So I think of, you know, and Dear Evan Hansen, if I only had a map, which is, you know, I don't know what the hell I'm doing.
That's I'm great. I'm making it up as I go, right? Like it's the opposite of my practice makes perfect. But I do think in venture, sometimes you have to have a belief and a conviction and go for it. And you hope you're right. But we invest so early that, you know, you, you do feel a little bit like it'd be nice to have a map. That's great. I love that. Hope Cochran, thank you very much for joining us. This has been great. Thank you. It's been fun. Hope Cochran is a managing director at Madrona Venture Group in Seattle. We'll link from the show notes to all of the different pieces of content and programs and investments that we talked about. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com and sign up for our daily email newsletter to receive all of our stories. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the GeekWire podcast wherever you listen. Our podcast producer is Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.